0: thanks ronnie and team i 'm especially excited about our time together today because in a few moments, uh, we will celebrate together uh, one of the two ordinances that Jesus gave us as a church. You recall Jesus gave us ordinances which are simply you know he commands us to practice these things there are two He gives the church one is baptism we do that once in our spiritual journey, and the ongoing one is the lord 's table today we Celebrate baptism wherein some will come and they will say to us by their actions that God has saved them, that they have placed their faith in Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And it will be a picture, if you will, over here in this, it's a trough actually behind this wooden thing of them going down in death with Christ, raised up out of that death with Christ to newness of life in and of itself. I think seeing what's going to happen in a few moments, when you see that, it's more impactful, if I can say this, than a thousand words in a sermon. So I've cut my sermon down to 800 words. No, I haven't. I'm going to try to be shorter today for for I want us to see this and feel this and recognize it for that great ordinance that Jesus intends it to be. In God's providence, we're in a passage in Luke as we study through it, uh, that on this particular day, I think it, it sets up, if I can say that that way, the baptisms beautifully. If, you know, we plan and we pray as we prepare messages, but you guys that go to fellowship know, we just teach through books of the Bible. And in God's providence, we're at a text today that in a number of ways illustrates and and sets upon a pedestal, I think, like the baptisms that we will see. We're not that smart to do it, so that's why I refer to God's providence in it. Last week, Bill walked us through the first part of uh, chapter 19, 11 through 27, and I'll summarize it this way. Bill reminded us in that parable that it's faithfulness, not success, that is the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what was really fascinating as he unpacked it and showed us in the cultural context that it's faithfulness with the gospel, right? The parable of the minas, and we always think, "What's well, it's money, whatever. Well, but it's, it's a picture of being faithful with the gospel, with the, with the good news that we've all been entrusted with. One of the ways that Bill did that was he outlined the historical or the cultural context, Right, where he said, This is what happened in that day. In that day, literally, there were people who went away to get a kingdom, like the nobleman in the story, and then people went and said, We don't want him to be king, we don't want him to be king, right? And then they came back, and he said, And it's like, Oh, that's what that means. Well, in our text today, there is a cultural, historical context that I think helps us grasp and understand the story. There's also a biblical and a theological framework that the story's built upon. And if I can describe it like this, it's like getting two lenses in your glasses. I'm gonna give you two lenses that when we see this story, when we read it in a moment, it's like, bing, that makes sense. And we not only, if I could say this, understand the story and and we walk out of here, boy, I'm I'm informed now, I know that. No, 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 that we never wanna teach that way. And God never intends the Bible to be brought to us that way. We don't go out informed. I think when we get these, this cultural context and biblical context, we're going we're to meet the story and the story is going to change us because that's what it's always intended to do. So before we read it, I'm going to give you these two things. First, the cultural historical context. In a nutshell, we're in 1928 to 44 uh, in Luke. It's the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We all know it as the triumphal entry. That's the story we're gonna read. Those who lived the events and those who read it for the first time when Luke penned his gospel, oh my, they saw, if I can they saw much more and they saw very clearly more than we could without some help. So let me give us that help, cultural, historical context. City leaders, when a dignitary came, would go out of the city and greet the dignitary and bring them back in. Everyone knew that, especially when a king or a prince was coming. We go out and greet them. Then we come back in and we're carrying them on our shoulders. He's come to visit. He's with us. Kenneth Bailey, whom we quote a lot, he's a tremendous histor- historian, biblical scholar. Uh, he describes a time in the 1960s. So this is relatively recent history. When he lived in Egypt, President, it was President Nasser and Nasser was visiting a village called Asuit. And when he was visiting that village the people of Asuit, they went out of the village 10 miles so we really we really we really think this guy's important they went out 10 miles they had the whole motorcade turn off their cars they tied ropes to the cars and then they hauled the, they wouldn't let them drive in they wanted to pull them in was it a burden hardly it was a joy It was a jubilant celebration. It was them saying, this is what we think of you. And we want to honor you. It's also a matter of historic record that a Roman magistrate once visited a city. As he approached it, they didn't welcome him, and he wiped it off the map. I want you to turn in your Bibles, because I want you to see this, because we study the Bible, and I want you to see how the Spirit inspired Luke to record certain things. And it's like the dots begin to come together the further we move through his story. Flip back in your Bible to Luke 9. Would you do that for just a moment? Luke chapter 9. And I want to remind you that the story we're in today, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. My goodness, we've been on the road forever, it feels like. It's been almost a year. But the the journey to Jerusalem actually began back in chapter 9, verse 51. Okay, that's that's when we said Jesus is to Jerusalem and we've been tracking with him now for months. I want you to notice, we're revisiting this, what Luke writes. It's very telling in light of where we are in the story today. Verse 51, when he came to the house. Uh, wait a the wrong one. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he determined to go to Jerusalem. Got it. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, "Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them?" <laughs> I think it's kind of funny, actually. But when we read that back then, you were all kind of scratching our heads, saying, "What? What are they overreacting?" No. Why? This is the king. This this is the Son of God. He needs to be welcome. You're not welcoming him. We're going to call it... You see what I'm saying? They knew how you were supposed to welcome a king. Now, hold that lens right there. Jesus is coming in, not to a Samaritan city, men and women. He's coming home. How are they going to welcome him? Second thing is the biblical theological framework. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, when a prophet would proclaim his truth and no one listened you know, God would finally say, okay, time to take the gloves off. And, and, and what he did was he said, look, I want you to, I want you to pick up something. I want you to buy something. I want you to shave your head. I want you to act out the truth so that when you act it out, it is now unmistakable what I'm saying. I mean, I've been saying it for years, but now I want you to act it out. Think about Jeremiah. At one point, God said, look, put a yoke on your net. Really? Yes, a yoke. Well, he got in it. And everybody looked and said, what's that? He said, this is Babylon and you better get in it and you'll live or stay out of it and you die. We hate the Babylonians, right? But you're going into judgment, so get in the yoke. You know, everyone said, got it. Uh, Ezekiel speaks over and over and over again. No one's listening. God says, shave your head. He shaved his head. He got three big piles of hair. And I said this earlier, you know, I shaved my head, I would get dust. You know, there'd be nothing for the illustration. He's got three piles. And and God says, throw this one to the wind, strike that one with a sword and get rid of it. And and, and Ezekiel said, this is what's happening. This is what's gonna happen to you. And everybody goes, ding, ding, ding. Got it, unmistakable, judgment's coming on us. And of course, Hosea, any of us know that story, Hosea? God said, Mary, a prostitute. She's totally unfaithful to him. Go back and get her. What's that a picture of? I want everyone to understand without a shadow of doubt that I'm faithful. And so he lives this story out, and it's unmistakable that God is faithful. Can I say it this way? When you read this story in a moment, when we read it, Jesus is a prophet par excellence, and he acts out the message that he's been saying and that has been said about him since his birth. He's born and they say, he's the king. He's baptized and demonstrates he's the son of God. He does miracles and signs that demonstrate he's Messiah, son of David. Okay, he's been doing this all along. Well, now all of a sudden, he's gonna act it out if I can say it that way. Because you gotta think about this. We've been in this for over you know, 18 months now, every time someone gets healed, what does Jesus say to him? Shh, shut up. Don't tell anybody. Every time they go, we want to make you king. We want to make it. He quiets them. So he's always suppressing the public adulation, right? And then we read this story. Don't you scratch your head and go, what? Jesus, you've been telling everybody to be quiet. And now this, this huge, you know, celebration public, what's going on? Well, the time has come. It's time. It's time to decide. This story we're reading is on a Sunday. On Friday of this week, Jesus Christ will be on a cross. It's time. And so he comes into Jerusalem. And he allows things to happen in such a way, gang, listen, there's just no mistaking it. He's claiming to be and is exalted as the king. Now, that was all introduction. Uh, When we read this, I want to suggest that it's just going to make sense. It's just going to be like, okay, let's keep going. Now... I want everyone to stand, and uh, we don't do this all the time, but we'll do it now. We'll do it occasionally where we stand in the reading of the Word. If you're going to be baptized, I'm going to let you guys slide out now that we're standing. And I know if you're going to be baptized this morning, you know know who I'm talking to. And Parker, if you're in here, because I didn't get to see you earlier, just slide on back here, and they'll be getting ready to be baptized, okay? For us, we'll stand in honor of God's Word, and let's read it, follow along with me. This is God's Word to us today. We're in Luke chapter 19 and we're beginning in verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage in Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead, find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, sure enough, its owner said, well, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. I want you to stop right there just for a moment. And, and uh, you know, we don't do this often, but you're standing, and I'm going to teach for a moment while you're standing. You know, Probably alert. No one's asleep that I can tell right now. So I want you to stop right there because I want you to think about something. When, when he goes and gets the colt, and by the way, it's a, male donkey, it's never been ridden on, okay? And they go and they get it. You gotta go back 500 years to Zechariah 9.9. All the way back here, 500 years earlier, Zechariah said, he prophesied, you know, behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you, mounted on a colt, on a donkey, unridden. You see, so, so he, he said, he prophesied it 500 years earlier. And y'all just, I just want you to think about this. 500 years go by. And at the exact moment and in the exact place it needed to be, uh, under the owners that it needed to be under, there's this donkey. And my thought immediately is, you know, I I think of that UPS commercial where the UPS guys go, we love logistics. You know, in my mind, I go, God loves logistics. I mean, and God, God orchestrates things such that 500 years can go by, and the very thing that was prophesied comes to be in, in that moment, and I want to say to all of us that God has not lost his touch. He didn't need computers to improve his logistics. Oh, my goodness, so wherever you are, and whatever you need, and how you need it and where you... You see, God still orchestrates and rules the universe sovereignly. There's a second thing. Notice when they took the colt, the owner said, hey, wait, wait, what, are you, what are you doing? They said, the Lord has need of it. And then they took it to Jesus. Can I say, can I say it this way? You know, it's, what, what's happening in that story is... Jesus is claiming what's his. And he just claims it with this word. The Lord has need of it. In the same way that God is sovereign. Listen, he owns it all. And so he's still claiming what's his. And there may be some in the room this morning that you've got something that that you've heard this whisper. The Lord has need of it. And the conviction for me is I've thought about it for myself. I go, if the Lord does it, when the Lord does it, as he does it, what, what does my hand do? You know, or, or all it requires is a word. The Lord has need of it. Yes, because it's all yours. He's still claiming what's his. And then think about it, using it for his glory and good. We'll keep going. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. In other words, they, put, they tied ropes to the bumpers and pulled him in. They're laying their coats in front of him. We're honoring you. You're great. You're great. We're honoring you. Over and over, they lay their coats down. As he was going, they were spreading their coats in the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples!' But Jesus answered, "'I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out.' When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, "'If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace,' now they've been hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, the king has entered Jerusalem. You know, don't you see it now it, through these lenses? It's like, okay, that makes a ton of sense, and everything seems to be going as it should. But if I can say this, something is desperately wrong with this picture. Do you see it? Do, do, you, do you read that and you go, what? Well, something is out of whack. I want to suggest there's a lot wrong with it, but there's one thing I want to point us to that Jesus and Luke want us to see at the back end of the passage. It's this, the crowds are cheering, yes! But the king is what? He's weeping. What's wrong with this picture? it says Jesus wept. It's not the same Greek word used When he speaks of Lazarus, that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This is not, he wept there. This is a different Greek word that is ten times stronger than that Greek word. And it means an emotional, deep wail, dirge, sorrow flowing out. It's like uncontrollable weeping. They're cheering. He's sobbing uncontrollably. Why is the king crying? Because he knew that this welcome, y'all look up on the side screens. In the text that we read, it was a hollow welcome. Because many who welcome him now will in a few days be crying what? Not Hosanna, Hosanna, which other texts say. What will they be crying? Crucified. Jesus tells us why the picture's out of whack. Look in your text at verse 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Look at verse 44. The back end, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That means what we kind of think it means. It means like in the Old Testament, when God showed up, he either judged or delivered. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. It's now. And you missed it. Missed it. It's a scary thought that, think about this, up here it says, but they have been hidden from your eyes. It's not like, peop- I wanna see it, and you're not letting me, I wanna see it and you're not letting me. That's not what that means at all. We take the whole Bible, it means this, this is sobering. If a person says no to God, no Jesus, I don't mean. If a person go to church all their life, but they just go, no, I'm not gonna make that decision now. If a person rejects God, if a person is you know, against God, if a person just ignores God, if a person just keeps going, no, and a person, says you know, I'll decide later. If a person says, I don't want to hear it. If a person just keeps doing that, can I tell you this? What that verse means is there will come a time when by your own choice, you understand the hardness of your heart. It goes so hard. You'll not, you won't be able to see who's that on God. I don't want you to see I'm keeping. No, no, that's on us. You see, there's, there's a, Time, and you keep resisting that, and there 's a callousness that comes, and God gives us over to the hardness of our heart, and then we can 't see. They're declaring peace in heaven. wow, the, the, the cheer's correct. You know, peace in heaven, etc. but they do not understand how that peace will come. Bill and Michael and I have talked all the way through Luke's gospel that they thought that when Messiah came, he would crush the Romans, he would get rid of the Gentiles, and the Jews would be right where they belong on the top of the heap. You know, I'm not faulting that at all. That's history, that's the way they thought it. And so they're going in this cheer, peace on heaven. It's like, yes, it's going to happen. And they totally miss that their problem is not Roman oppression. What's their problem? sin. Their problem is not the Gentiles. Who's their problem? God. And I would suggest for all of us, for all of humanity, our biggest problem, our biggest problem is God and our offense unto him by our choices and our life. And so Jesus looks at Jerusalem And he says He knows the peace that he's going to be giving Is he's going to make a way for peace With God And how's he going to do that By his suffering By his death By his burial And by his resurrection I want you to hear this On Jesus' tears He's Not crying for himself. He is weeping for every person. For every person who rejects him. And the cost they will pay. He weeps. The destruction in verses 43 and 44, by the way, men and women, it literally happened. Uh, Jerusalem's destroyed about 40 years later. The Romans... Tenth Legion comes, and it's beyond description, it was utterly a massacre, savage. and Jerusalem was leveled such that the emperor didn't wanted people to look at that place and not even know there was ever anyone who you know, It was just brutal. The person who rejects the king, I mean, is their future going to be like Jerusalem? Yes. Yes. And hear this. And and should that happen, I want you to understand, Jesus weeps for you. So we've always got to understand and grasp. The judgments and justice of God are saturated with his tears. God doesn't want any to perish. Jesus entered Jerusalem. This is some 2,000 years ago. And when he did that, I, I want you to know that as we've seen it, y'all, he did it in a way that you could not look at the events and go, I wonder if he's king. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think, you think he's plain? You see what I'm saying? It, it's just absolutely plain as day. And in the ordinance of baptism, that, I, I think it's a wonderful picture in a, in a similar sense that we look and we go, God saved them. That's what that picture is. That's a picture of God's graciousness to redeem and save. And that's what we get to celebrate in these moments. So with that, I'm going to ask those who are being baptized to come on out. We're going to line up. Come on out here and line up behind me.